We're in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 6 today, so I invite you to turn your attention there. We'll give you the fill-in-the-blanks and the handout as we go along. But we are working our way through the book of books of 1 and 2 Corinthians. We began this a little while ago. And really the overall theme that we are pursuing as we, as we get into this is that we are to be who we already are. Apostle Paul is writing these letters to the church at Corinth. He was instrumental in, in planting the church. He was instrumental in seeing the church grow. Spent about 18 months of his life there. Has uh, interacted with them in a variety of different ways. And, and these two letters are part of a series of at least four letters that he's written, written as well as a variety of different visits. And, and so he's, he's, he's dealing with a number of, of in-house issues that the church ha- is struggling with. Um, but he is also just simply reminding them in an overall way, be who you already are. You already declared holy. You already declared righteous. So live like that's who we are. And then he's given a number of practical illustrations as he's gone away, as he's gone through the book. And, and we are, here we are in chapter 6. The association that we are a part of, uh, of churches is the Baptist Network Northwest. And one of the issues that comes up with the Baptist Network Northwest is, uh, is, at, is at times to take back church property from churches. I just got done uh, serving on the executive team for the last six years, and so I'm on a bit of a break. But uh, unfortunately, this was part of the responsibilities um, that I was engaged in. A, a big part of Baptist Network Northwest ministry is called the Revolving Fund. The Revolving Fund is where Christians can invest uh, their money, they can deposit money into the revolving fund and they get, they get that money back after a period of time and they earn interest on that. And the, the, the money that is loaned to the church as an investment is then turned around and loaned back to churches so that they could purchase property and, uh, and build buildings. And the reason why this is important is that churches um, inherently have a problem getting traditional financing. Um, you know, it, it just takes one really bad leader to destroy a church. And so a bank looks at the risk that's involved with loaning money to churches, and, and it's a big risk for them. And so, um, uh, and because the church is not like a regular traditional business that produces goods or services that, that have a money value attached to them, um, it becomes a really a huge risk. And so for churches to get a bank loan, it usually requires a, a significant down payment or a really high interest rate to absorb the risk that that bank is, is taking when they loan a church um, uh, money to, to build a building. So the BNN, um, uh, uh, about 70 years ago, um, in the early 50s, um, established this revolving fund so that um, uh, the Christians that had money could invest it and, and get a return on their investment, but then also churches could... Uh, borrow money at a at a lower rate than they would ever get um, from uh, from the bank or from a bank, and so it becomes kind of a win win. The churches are able to build buildings, and people are able to invest and see it being used um, to do God's work. So the BNN is able to to do that, and um, in exchange, um, when the church borrows money, the BNN puts a deed of trust on the property, so that in the hopefully unlikely event that the church can't make a payment or even closes, the property can be sold to repay debts and repay those investors that have, have paid money into that. And most of the time, church properties are not really that valuable. They are really valuable for the church that owns them because they've invested time and resources and they've built buildings that are usually very church-specific. But for a bank to, to one, foreclose on a, on a property and then turn around and, and, and sell it, it almost always has to go back to uh, stay in, in a church perspective. Most of the, most of the time, the, these properties are, are only valuable as a church, sometimes for historic reasons, sometimes for um, tax purposes. Um, one property that, that I was involved with um, had a tremendous amount of value, though. This, um, this church property was in West Seattle, and it was on one of the main roads, California Avenue, that um, goes east to west in West Seattle. And uh, the church was a huge, old building built um, in the late 1800s. And um, it had a number of, of, of education buildings and what have you. And unfortunately, um, because of mismanagement of a pastor, this church um, died. 
and the, the, the former pastor himself, um, uh, when, when he moved off the scene, the church decided that they were going to close themselves down, deed the property to the Baptist Network Northwest with the idea of replanting another church because it was in a very strategic location. So the church did that. They voted to close, give the building back, and everyone began to find new places to worship in, um, except for one family who ran the church's daycare. When everyone was gone, they decided to reincorporate the church, change the constitution, and took the property for themselves. So the BNN had a, had, and the former members had a decision to make. Do they go through the legal process to try to get this church property back, a church property that was valued in, in the several million dollars, by the way, um, or do they just let it go? Some wanted to do this, and they were really angry. They and their parents and their grandparents had worked really hard to build this building. They had invested a lot of time and energy. There were weddings, there were funerals, there were baptisms that had happened in those buildings. They were very special to them. Um, they were excited to see something new replant. They were not excited to see it uh, turned into something that um, something other. They were really upset that it was one of their own that were being that were using uh, the. The, the law, basically, for kind of some nefarious purposes. Ultimately, the passage we're going to look at today led them to decide to let it go, to not fight it. So we're going to look at how do we, as followers of Jesus, handle lawsuits, the morality of lawsuits. Now, this is a, it can be a very difficult situation, and, 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 and every answer may not be right in every situation. I commend this church for letting the, that property go. It was not an easy decision. There was a lot of, of anger and a lot of tears that went with it. I think it was the right decision. It was not the easy decision. When it comes to lawsuits, generally, they're not usually easy. They usually come at the end of a lot of pain, a lot of anger at times, a lot of frustration, a lot of disappointments. But let's think about the morality of lawsuits. In Matthew, Matthew, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, Paul begins this way. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Sinful choices can lead us to seek justice from the courts instead of through the church. That was not Paul's desire. In humility, we need to learn to confront sin and brokenness in each other's lives. This was a broken church, but they're not exclusive to that title. The situation, as it's described here, is of a situation that Paul has heard of, of at least two brothers that were suing each other in court. Now, the Greeks had a very litigious society, kind of in many ways like us, but perhaps even a little bit more, I mean, we're heading in the direction of where the Greeks kind of were at the first century, but they had an extremely highly litigious society. And while we don't have a lot of records about the law situation in Corinth, the assumption that is made is that what was happening in Athens 40 miles down the road is probably the same flavor of what was happening in Corinth. And we have a lot of court records that are available what was going on in Athens. So a lot of what I'm drawing from here, at least to describe the situation, comes from Athens. I, I admit that because the Corinthian case is, is just lacking a little bit. But, but let me just describe a little bit about what was happening in Greek culture as far as, as lawsuits and, and suing each other were going on. If there were two parties that had a disagreement about something, in, in the Athenian culture, it went this way. Instead of you having a discussion with your neighbor about the fence line or you having a discussion with somebody that owed you some money, the very first thing that, that would happen is, is that the case would go straight to private arbitration. You would hire your own arbiter. They would hire their own arbiter, very similar to us hiring lawyers today. And, and those two lawyers or those two arbiters would come together and they, would, they themselves would choose a third neutral party. And the three of them would decide the facts of the case and would come up with some kind of resolution. 
Uh, each party, again, signed, this, uh, signed a lawyer with these three people and, and tried to come up with a resolution. Okay, the fence needed to go here. You owe this amount of money. You, uh, you, know, you violated this contract in, in this manner. But if that did not happen, there was another set of layers that would go on. Now, these arbiters, what we know historically is, is that these arbiters um, were very important people at kind of keeping the society functioning and flowing. In fact, the law, the Athenian law was this, that, that once you hit the year of 60 of your life, every person who was 60 years of life had to serve at least one year as an arbiter. In some ways, we say, okay, that kind of makes sense. Somebody who's lived life, who's seasoned, who's kind of seen a lot of different things, we would say, listen, if I've got a, a disagreement between a party, I want somebody who's at least lived life, who understands what's going on. And so for someone to attain the age of 60, we'd say that's somebody who's, who, who hopefully is not driven by youthful passion, somebody who has at least understands the law, somebody that, that understands what's going on culturally, and so the Athenian law was if you hit the age of 60, uh, you know, instead of getting your AARP card or you know, getting your Social Security, what you got to do is you got a new job that year. And you got to be an arbiter. And so someone would be able to grab you off the street and say, listen, I've got a disagreement with, with my neighbor. I've got a, a problem with this contract. I want you to be my advocate. And they would have to, by law, have to serve for at least that 60th year and sometimes longer in that, in that situation as an arbiter. Now, if that initial arbitration, instead of being able to talk to my neighbor, talk to my employer, talk to you know, the bill collector face-to-face, they would, they would already elevate it to this point of everything has to be kind of adversarial. Right? Anytime you bring in multiple parties, it becomes adversarial. And, and so everything in this Greek culture automatically was you versus me, we'll see, you know, someone's going to win, someone's going to lose. What would happen if, if in the case of, of this arbitration, if this failed, they would bring it to the court of 40. And the court of 40 is exactly what it sounds. There was jurists that would make up, uh, 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 of, uh, there would be 40 different arbiters who would be assigned to this case that would, that would serve as jurists and judge, and they would hear the case. There was one other layer. If it failed when you went to the court of 40, is, is that you could have a further jury trial uh, dealing with these issues that could be anywhere from 100 to 1,000 jurists. All right? So you can imagine, I, I've been on, some, many of you have been on, on juries, I've been on, on, on a couple now, um, and it's hard to get 12 people to agree on anything, right? Can you imagine being in a jury pool of 1,000 Right, so some of these big cases, they would literally, it was almost like, like the whole town would, oh, let's see how this is going to end up. It became kind of a spectator sport in, in Athens. In fact, it was, such a, it was such an integral part of their culture that, that it wasn't, you, know, you didn't have private arbitration where I've got, you know, I've got a disagreement with my neighbor. No, everything was public. Now, there was no such thing as, as, uh, as private issues. Everything was transparent. And so you could imagine these big cases where there's a thousand jurists hearing this case that would have been, you know, in every paper would have been the, the, the talk of the town. Wow, this is a big thing going on. In fact, a jurist could be anybody over the age of 30 and above. All right, so the arbiters were 60. The jurists were anybody 30 and above. And in fact, this is, this is one, as one historian relates it, that, that, that most likely everybody in Greek, in Greek culture had been either a party to a lawsuit, an arbiter, or a jurist. And probably multiple times. All right, now, now for us, like if we get sued once in a lifetime, that's more than enough. Right? If we get jury duty once in 10 years, we're like, oh, man, that's good. I hope not to get that call again. Right? It's, not, it's a very inconvenient thing. Nobody likes, nobody likes the feeling of, of standing before a judge and, and asking, having them asking you private questions and then swearing that you would uphold the law. No one likes to be, you know, be called as a witness in a case or have to give a deposition. Those are very uncomfortable times. But in the Greek culture, it was just an everyday fact of life. You were probably at any one time either being sued, had been sued, or were listening to somebody else's case who was being sued. It was kind of probably like our culture, you know, with the O.J. Simpson case, but it was just like everybody was an O.J. Simpson case. Everybody was watching the white Bronco. So this was the, the culture of the Corinthian church. 
Right? And again, that's how Athens, a lot of evidence of what Athenian case was, this is 40 miles away, most likely it's the exact same thing as what was going on in Corinth. So why is Paul bringing this up? Well, the church often is better than the culture, but only by degrees. And we say, well, that's probably shouldn't how Christians shouldn't operate that way. Christians should probably be able to be men and women of the word. If I say I'm going to pay you $20 and, and you should expect that $20 should come to you, you shouldn't have to take me to small claims court and say, well, Phil promised me on this date that he was going to give me $20. And so I have to take you to court to get the $20, you know, to, you know, that, that, if I, that our word should be our bond, that what we say should be truthful and, and honest and to the very best of our ability, that if we promise to do something, we should do it. The church, though, oftentimes is only better than the culture, but, but only by degrees. In the first century, while the Greeks were very litigious, the Jewish culture, which is part of what Paul is addressing here as a church, had a special carve-out. The Romans gave them a special carve-out by exemption to the pagan law courts. That if there was a dispute in, in, in those of Jewish, the Jewish community, and certainly in Israel, that, that they had a carve-out. They didn't have to go to the pagan courts. That they could set up their own tribunals. And the Christians were considered a variant of, of, of Judaism initially. And so, so Israel could, could mandate their own law and how things were. Even though the Greeks kind of operated this way and the Romans followed right after them, the, the, the Israelis, the Hebrews, could function a little different. Now, we have a great illustration of this uh, during the life of Jesus. Remember when Jesus was arrested, he was arrested by the, the temple leaders and by the temple guards, and he was tried before Caiaphas and Annas and, and the Sanhedrin, and they found him guilty. Right? They, could, they could whip him, they could, um, they, could, uh, they could beat him, they could arrest him, but they could not kill him. All right? So the, 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 the law said you, could, you, could, you can punish them, but the capital crimes were reserved for Rome alone. And so you remember that the, the Jewish leaders brought him before um, uh, Pilate and said, listen, we found him guilty. He violated our law. All right? We want to put him to death, but we can't do that. We need your permission. And so, so the Jews, the, the Israelis, they had this special exemption. They could moderate almost anything in, dealing with personal interactions except for those crimes involving capital punishment. The... The, 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 the Corinthians, whether they were of the Jewish mindset and they were used to dealing with problems of their own, if they were the Greek mindset dealing with, with going to Greek court, all of them had, had kind of grown up thinking that this was the only way to resolve conflict. If I got a problem with you, I'm just going to take you to court. I'll let somebody else figure it out. I, I, and in many ways, we kind of look at that today, we say it's kind of a passive-aggressive way to kind of deal with problems, right? Like, I've got a problem with you, so let me go talk to, to Joe, and Joe's going to come in and tell you how to live your life and how to fix what's broken with you. Instead, we, we, we tend to be a little bit more, listen, if I've got a problem with you, I should talk to you first. And if that doesn't resolve it, we bring in somebody else. And, and if that doesn't resolve it, we escalate it up from there. But, but they had grown up, the Corinthians had grown up thinking the only way to resolve conflict is this passive-aggressive kind of a way. Now, what was the nature of their conflict? Perhaps it was over the divisions of leadership. We've already seen that in this book, right? Where, where Paul says, you know, some of you are saying, I'm of Apollos. Some of you are saying, I'm of Peter. Some of you are saying, I'm, I'm of Paul. Some of you are, you know, the, we're just old school. We're just following Jesus. Perhaps it was issues of leadership. Maybe there was conflict going on between uh, those who maybe had you know, more authority, more responsibility, and, and they were pushing their agenda on the rest of the church. Maybe it was some of the other things that he's going to deal with in this book. Maybe there were, there were some that were, were feeling like, listen, our, our widows aren't being taken care of. You're, you're neglecting by you know, hoarding uh, gifts that were intended to be distributed. Maybe it would, had to deal with the Lord's Supper, that, that some of them were abusing the Lord's Supper. We'll see that in chapter 11. Maybe it had to deal with um, other aspects of leadership. We don't really know. We don't know what the conflict was here. Right? But there was, there was such a conflict that, that some of them were taking others to court. I would propose this, that the issues addressed here are most likely financial and not criminal. They're most likely financial and not criminal based upon the, the vocabulary that Paul is, is addressing here, that these are dealing with finances of some level, right? not criminal. 
Why do I say this? Well, because as we, as we tie together some of the other things that Paul and Peter have said, is, is that there is a role for the courts when it's dealing with criminality. Right? So keep your finger here. Look back, if you would, probably just a couple of pages to Romans chapter 13. The role of government is to punish those who break the law. Romans 13, verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good. You will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. There is a role for government to play. It is God established. Now, as, as, as Paul is writing those things in Rome, remember who's in charge. It was Nero. He was the guy that was, that was burning Christians at the stake. He was, he was regularly mocking them and persecuting them. And yet Paul says, listen, there is a role for Nero to play. In fact, Paul even says, not only is there a role for him, but God is the one who put him there. That's an important thing for us to remember. You know, we live in this day and age where, where we have this kind of you know, us versus them mentality when it comes to politics. Well, he's not my president. I didn't vote for him. Resist. Those are counter to the word of God. You may not like that person. You may not vote for them when they come up for, a, for election the next time. But it doesn't really matter because the day after the election, they are your senator. They are your governor. They are your president. They are whatever position, your, your mayor. All right? Those positions are God-ordained. That God is the one who, who put President Trump in office, just like he put President Obama in office. Right? And, and, and it's important for us to remember that, that, that we are to pray for them, that we are to respect them, to give honor to them. Not because they've earned it, by the way, but because of the position that they are in. And that's an important thing for us to remember, that there is a role for them to play. And part of the role for them to play is, is that they are to punish those who do evil, they are re- to reward those who do right. The role of government is dealing with criminality, criminal things. Took, uh, take a look at Second, uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Peter, in a very similar way, uh, says this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human in- institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or uh, to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men. Do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. The role of government is to punish those who break the law. So even though there can be forgiveness for those who break the law, God has a standard for moral living and he expects us to live in it and operate in. So the reason why I think that this issue here is financial and not criminal is that if it was criminal, I'm confident that Paul would say, listen, if, if you broke the Roman law, the Corinthian law, the, the, the cultures of those days, if you broke those law, that, that he would have, it said, listen, you, you need to pay what you need to pay. You need to, to pay the, the, for the crime that you committed. Too many churches, unfortunately, have taken this passage and have used it to hide behind and cover over some hideous sins. They've taken this passage and say, well, you know, the Bible says that we need to deal with these things internally. So when a, a, a clergy member engages in, um, in, in criminally wrong things, Right uh, when they've in, involved in in um, uh, child abuse, when they've been in, involved in in theft, when they've been involved in murder, even they've gone to the point of saying, "Well, you know what? That that we're not to take each other to court. So it's not right for us to call the police, you know, and report this crime that's gone on." And I, I think that Paul would would roundly reject that. He would say, "No, there is a role that when we break." the law, right? When there is a criminal act that has been perpetrated on, on, on a person that, you know, other than, uh, the, you know, crime has been committed, let me say it that way, that we are to report them, 
That we're not to use this passage to say, well, you know what, we can't take anyone to court, so I better not call you know, the police to report you know, an assault, uh, you know, a, a murder, something like that. And, and unfortunately, a lot of churches have taken this passage, I believe, wrongly, and said we can't a- operate that way. Now, we can forgive, and we can show love, and we can show grace even to someone uh, when they've turned themselves in. All right? We should manifest those, those fruits of the Spirit. But if we've suspe- suspected that a crime has pet- been committed, then we should allow the police to do their work. We shouldn't say, well, you know, I can't, I can't do this because it's a brother or sister in the Lord. We should allow the government to do their work. He says, he says, he says it's been reported that this is going on, that there's a case against a brother, and some would even dare to go to the law before the, before the unrighteous and not before the saints. The, the, the dare there is an interesting word, and we'll look at that in just a little bit, but basically what he's saying is this, is that if we lose, even when we win, if financial issues aren't arbitrated by the church. That we need to understand what should be handled inside the house and outside the house. So I would, I would look at it this way. Criminal things we handle outside. We hand it over to those who investigate and those who punish crime because that's their role. That it's not our job as a church to usurp their role. That there's a role for government to punish evildoers and reward those who do well. But there is a role for the church, and that is to learn to get along with one another when it's dealing with these financial or other kind of matters. So he he develops this by expanding upon the place of the Christian and the economy of God, or how how God operates, or how God works. So does any of you have a case against his neighbor dared, and dare to go to the law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it, is it, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brothers? But brother goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers. The place of Christian in the economy of God in the future as Paul describes it here, he says, listen, in the future, we will reign with Christ. Now he gives a reference here to angels, and, and the angel reference is a little bit ambiguous. Um, the, the, the various commentaries and, and folks that, that handle this really wrestle through this. Um, the, the angel reference is a difficult one, and the reason why is twofold. One, is scripture tells us that the, that the wicked angels or the fallen angels are going to be judged by, by the Lord himself. Um, in Second Peter chapter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2 and, and verse 4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness and reserved them for judgment. All right? And then Jude, Jude verse 6 says this, angels who, and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned, but abandoned their abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of that great day. Both texts... The implication of both texts is, is that, that the Lord himself will be judging the wicked angels, all right, the, the, the sinful fallen angels. The problem comes up with this, that the elect angels have no sin. So what are they going to be judged for? Um, the wicked angels are going to be judged by Christ. The elect angels have no sin and have no need for judgment. The most likely concept here is this, is, is that there is a, a concept where the word judgment here could be better understood or maybe best understood as ruling or reigning with him. That there is a concept that, that we are going to be ruling and have authority over the angels with Christ. And so it, it, Paul's argument kind of goes this way. Listen, there's coming a day in the future when we're going to help the Lord, rule and reign over all authority, both spiritual authority as well as physical authority. So why can't we figure out how to get along here in this life? Right? If we're going to do great things in the future, why can't we do small things in the present? Now the courts and church both have a role to play, as I've mentioned before. The, the, the role of the courts is to deal with criminal things, breaking of you know, the criminal statutes, that is not a place where the church should be involved in. I th- and I say that because there are a number of denominations, both the Catholic Church, the, the Southern Baptist, the, the Episcopalians, there's a number of denominations that, have, that over the years have swept a lot of stuff up under the rug that should have been handed over to the courts and said, all right, police force, Federal Bureau of Investigation, you do your work. Right? There have been some criminal acts and people need to pay for the crimes that have been committed. 
Right? That's the role that the church has taken away and usurped from, from, from the, the legal position that God has appointed those in authority, governors and presidents and kings over us. Uh, and, and for that, the church is paying for that. Right? There are churches that are closing that have had the sole property because they've had to go bankrupt. And, and those ministries are diminishing rapidly because they didn't deal with those things in the right way. I mean, just think in the 50s and 30s and 40s, if those guys had been handed over to the authorities, you wouldn't have the issues that you have in these mainline churches today and even in churches like ours today. Uh, they, they, when there are crimes that are committed, they should be reported. They should be turned in because that's the role that God has put them. But the church also has a role to play, that Christians should submit to the church to deal with minor issues. That we should submit to one another when dealing with minor issues issues. And what Paul seems to be implying here is is that that, that, the issues that were being brought before the court were of such a nature, he says, why are you taking those kind of things to the court? Again, we don't know all that they are, but by implication we would say it must have been something minor enough that Paul had confidence that that church could have dealt with it. The word to dare, he he says, some of you even dare to go to the law. The word dare implies a boldness and a pride that they were going about suing each other. Can you imagine? Paul is wanting to to see unity in this church. Can you imagine being in a church where everybody is suing everybody? How uncomfortable would that be? Well, I can't look at her. She might get offended. This is the culture we live in, right? This is the culture, I mean, as Paul is addressing this 2,000 years ago, is addressing our culture today, right? I, 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 you know, I, I, yeah, I love the, the news, I love to see what's going on, and there's a dad who's been threatened with arrest if he refers to his transgender daughter as a she, all right? Threatened with arrest over a pronoun. Uh, this is a crazy culture that we live in that is infected that, that can affect the church. Can you imagine just be like, I can't, boy, they might get offended, they might sue me, I might, get, I might lose my job, might lose my home. All of these things that would, that would happen if, if, if a church in such a litigious society was allowed to operate. This idea of boldness and pride that, that you would dare to bring someone, it's just this, this yeah, you, not only are you, you know, cautiously doing, but, but there's a boldness there, there's a pride in that to say, yeah, we had, I had a conflict with brother so-and-so, and I took him to court. The implication he also leaves here is, is that the most, the poorest trained believer, with the help of God's spirit, should be better equipped to handle matters inside the church than even the, the wisest and smartest of courts on the outside of the church. Now this is not accusing public judges of being bad. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is, is that they, on the outside, don't understand what we are trying to do on the inside. That they will be more than happy to see us divided where God is calling us to be united together. We are to build up, not to divide. God is to be the winner in all of our matters. And the world system will never be able to understand that and can certainly never factor that in. So to them, they look at an issue like what I mentioned earlier, the West Seattle situation, they would look, look at it simply as a land issue a contract issue between two opposing parties. And they're going to pick one side or the other. They don't really care that the, 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 the ministry of the church, the history of that church, they don't care about the, the visibility of what's going to happen in that community as, as Christian sues another Christian. They don't care about any of that. So all it, to them is it's a land issue. It's just a contract issue. It's about buildings. They would say the same thing if, 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 if you were suing to remove a pastor. They don't really care. It's just employee relations. Did you follow your employee handbook? Did you, did you do all the right steps? Uh, we don't really care that, that, that we can force an issue of you having a, somebody who is immoral, somebody who is maybe not even godly in a position of authority. It doesn't really matter to them. It's just simply a contract law to them. And so Paul says there are matters that, that, should, that even the weakest of Christians should be able to help decide. Brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? The true attitude we should have is to turn the other cheek. Verses 7 and 8, actually then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. 
Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brothers. The process of suing defeats us no matter the end results. That's what Paul's saying. He said, it really doesn't matter who wins you, you both have lost. The end result is, is that both of you are defeated. Remember that as we looked at the beginning of this book, that, that following uh, the gospel, following Jesus, is all oxymoronic. Right? That we find life in death. That, that, that God takes the foolish things to confound the wise. And the wise are unable to understand the simple things of God. That, that in the gospel, those things that we think, oh, if I go outside, if I get somebody to come in and hear the case, that there'll be peace. But he says, no, the opposite happens. The last uh, jury trial that I was on, there was a winner and there was a loser. The state was the winner. The defendant was the loser. And, and there was no middle ground there. See, either the state was going to be happy and the defendant sad, or the defendant was going to be ecstatic and the state was going to be depressed. There was no win-win, and there never is in a court situation. There never is a situation where you know, the, the doctor's really glad that you earned a $12 million settlement for his neglect because he probably not only is going to owe the money, his insurance is going to pay it, but he probably just lost his license as well. And, and there's no win-win there. You might be really excited and ecstatic that, that you're going to get compensated for, for what happened to you. The process of suing defeats us. God is the only one who could bring true justice. God is the only one who can bring true justice. The other side I think is important for us to remember is this, is that usually when we are taking somebody to court, we say we want justice. But the reality of it is, is what we really want is revenge. We want revenge more than justice because when we've been wronged, you know, when a doctor harms us and we win that $12 million settlement because maybe he amputated a, a leg that shouldn't have been amputated or, or there, you know, we lost a, a body part of or something else happened to us or maybe even somebody we love died. That $12 million will never make things right. All we're seeking to do in that case is to make them hurt as much as I hurt. Right? To, to make them to, to, to feel the pain that I'm feeling with them. And all that is is revenge. That's not justice. God is the only one who could bring true justice. So what Paul is saying here is this, do I trust God enough to take care of me and make things right? Do I trust God enough to take care of me and make things right? The word defeat here is an interesting word. He says, actually, it's, it's already defeated for you. The word defeat here was, the, was a Greek word that was used for those, it was a legal term for those who lost their court case. Right? If you lost your court case, this is the word that was applied to you. Oh, you were defeated. Paul says it doesn't really matter if you win the case, you've already lost. Why? Because we've lost a brother in the process. Right? Because we, we might win that settlement, we might win that, the statement of, of law, but we've lost the opportunity of fellowship and restoration with that brother in the process. Now, is there ever a reason to use the courts? Yes. As I've already mentioned, when a crime has been committed, I think it's, it's appropriate and right and, and, and God-honoring for us to use the courts when a crime has been committed. That we should, all of us, should be required reporters. That when we know crime has been reported, has been committed, right? Because we are instruments of righteousness in God, right? That we are to say, listen, you know what? What you did was wrong. That was wrong, and whether you get caught or not is 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 irrespective. That we should be men and women who want to do what's right, and when a crime has been committed, we should use the courts. I would say no when it comes to disputes and financial matters. What about if I was suing a non-Christian? Because he's referring to brother versus brother. What about, what about if my employer does me wrong? What about my, my neighbor, my unsaved family member? Is it okay then? Because we're not brother versus brother. There's no, there's no church that can mediate between them because they're not church members and they don't care. So, so what do I do then? Should I use the courts then? And I would say this, definitely not. Why? Because, you know, we can win our money back, we can lose the opportunity to be a witness. We can win our money back, but lose the opportunity to be a witness. Be breaches of contract 
should be handled by arbitration if possible. I don't think that's wrong. I certainly think Matthew 18 addresses that. If possible, if they're willing to go to arbitration and you're able to find a middle ground, that you should be able to do that. All right? And sometimes it's happened, maybe you bought a car and you've got a lemon and, and you need somebody to come in and help you get some restoration because you're out you know, $30,000 and you have a, a lemon, a clunker. You know, how, how do you get that? Do you just say, oh, well, woe is me. I think we need to use great care and, and, and prayer must be used. I don't have an answer for all those situations. But I certainly think we need to come to 1 Corinthians 6 and say, oh, what do I do with that? What do I do when, I, when my contract has been, has been broken with my employer, with a, something I've purchased, with a home, with, with uh, some other thing? You know, Great care, I think, must be used because ultimately what we want to make sure is this, that the end result doesn't cause us to lose. That we don't win the court battle and we lose our testimony in the process. We say, oh, some Christian you are. It is better to be wronged or to be defrauded than to destroy the name of Jesus. It's better to be wronged or defrauded than to destroy the name of Jesus. Now we are to forgive generously. Jesus talks quite a bit about financial matters. Let me just show a couple of these in the book of Matthew. You can keep your finger here, but in Matthew chapter 18, Matthew 18, Peter asked the Lord a really important question. He says, how many times should I forgive someone? Seven times? Jesus said, I don't say seven times. I say up to 70, 70 times seven. For this reason, and then he gives a story about um, a, a parable about the kingdom of heaven compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slave. When he had begun to settle them, one owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we've mentioned this before. This is several million dollars that this servant owed him. How and where, we don't know. All right? Um, and... and uh, and so he didn't have the money to repay in verse 25. His Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife, his children, all that he had in repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay everything. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Now it's a significant amount. All right, we're talking probably about three months worth of wages during this day. So, you know, not insignificant in our, in our day, you know, worth of of money. And he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, I will pay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened. They, They went to the king, were deeply grieved. And he summoned, the Lord summoned him and said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I have mercy on you? His Lord moved with, and his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to tortures until he should repay all that was owed to him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Now, we like the story. We like the idea of forgiveness. We don't really like that last verse too much, do we? We're to forgive generously. But does that mean that we will be exploited? Yes, it will. There will be people that will pray on you. There will be people that will disabuse you. There will be people that will take advantage of you. All right? And it will be in, in a variety of different forms. Maybe it will be a, you know, a really, uh, really smooth-talking salesman. Maybe, maybe it will be a, a family member who knows that, well, they'll never take me to court. I can get away with it. We are to forgive generously, though. And it's based upon the forgiveness that has been granted to us. Jesus in the Sermon of the Mount earlier in Matthew, Matthew chapter 5, says we are to turn the other cheek. Matthew 35, 39 and following. He says, I say to you, do not resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat also. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you. Do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We're to turn the other cheek. That's God's expectation for us. If we are to be sons of the Father, turn the other cheek. But along with that, another chapter forward, Jesus says this, Matthew 6, verse 33, but seek 
first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. We need to trust God to meet our needs. We need, and, and that is a hard thing, right? Because sometimes we think, well, yeah, but it's, it's my money, it's my car, it's my, it's my livelihood, it's, you know, this is why I'm, I'm going to these things. And what we're really saying is this, is that, that we don't trust God to meet our needs, that that bank account will meet our needs. That even if we lose our job and we get stuck with a lemon or, or, or we, get, we have other issues, that we really don't believe that God will meet our needs. We're to be generous with each other. We're to pray for God to change hearts. But we also to remember that we too have issues. You know, you've heard that phrase, you know, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. I think it should be changed a little bit for us as followers of Jesus. Fool me a thousand times because I trust in God. It does not mean that we should be foolish and that we should... You know, want, uh, uh, you know, just sign any contract to buy any product that comes our way. That is not, you know, God has given us wisdom. God has caused us to be, asked us to be wise as, as, as serpents and innocent as doves. We are to, to go through this life with our eyes wide open, right? Not to sign any contract or agree to anything. But when we have been harmed, <clears throat> when it comes to financial matters, if it's dealing with brother versus brother, then we bring it to the church. We allow the church to find some middle ground. The truth is, nothing really belongs to us anyways. We worry and fret over things that will, that will not go with us from this world. Right? None of us will take anything from this world. All that we have in this world is a gift from God. And if God takes it from us and gives it to another, then I guess God knew they had a greater need than we did. One of my favorite stories growing up is, this, is, the, um, is um, the pineapple story. And it's about a missionary that loved pineapples, and he was in Africa. And he planted pineapples because he, he was really looking forward to, to eating pineapples, but he didn't plant them himself. He had those around him plant the pineapples. And, and they said, we planted them, they belong to us, even though he purchased them and, and he asked them to do it. And so they were constantly stealing pineapples. And he was getting so frustrated, so angry with them that he wanted to leave the mission field because they were taking his pineapples and all he wanted was pineapple. And God worked with him in that story to say, you know, it was just pineapple. Why don't you give it back to me? And so he prayed. He said, God, these are your pineapples. They belong to you. Even though I want them, even though they really belong to me, they're yours and you can have them. And as the story relates, those who helped him plant the pineapples heard him pray that prayer and they never stole a pineapple again because they would steal from him, they wouldn't steal from God. And then he was sick of pineapples because he had so many of them. <laughs> you know, it's a great reminder that all that we have isn't ours anyways. It's all his. And so if he takes it from us through someone else's poor choices, they're going to stand before God in their conduct and how they took from you and, and robbed from you, and you will stand before God and say, you know what, God, I had to learn to trust in you in this situation. I don't know where it came from. I don't know the circumstances, but I trust in you. Nothing really belongs to us. It all belongs to him. He finishes the section off with a reminder to the Corinthians about what their true character in Christ should be. He says this, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do, you not, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. The true character, he contrasts really between the righteous and the unrighteous. And I think part of this is, and we're going to get into some of these things more as we, we go along, is, is that they were, too many of them were living like they used to be. All right? And he says, listen, we need to live like God calls us to be, not, not being defined by our past, not being defined by what we used to be. And so he gives us a list here. This is not an exhaustive list um, by any stretch of the means of all the sins. But the sins that are listed here are really sins that kind of define a person, that, that, that we would probably call lifestyle sins, that, that when you kind of engage in these kind of things, that they, they attach a label to you, and that label oftentimes sticks sometimes through a lifetime. So here's the list of things. Let me just go through them, and they're, they're kind of self-explanatory. Fornication. Fornication is sexual immorality. It's a generic term, but it specifically is fornication is directed towards those who are unmarried. Right, God has standards. 
And we talked about this a little bit last week, and we'll talk about this um, in a couple of weeks. God has standards when it comes to human sexuality. Sex is for marriage only. All other acts are immoral. All right? And so we can, we can engage in fornication where we become dead. That's just who we are. That's a, that's a character. And so he'll pick this up again in a little bit. Idolatry. Idolatry is ascribing worship to anyone or anything other than God. We know what we worship by looking at our timesheets, our thought life, and our bank accounts. Are those things that you invest in, your time, your resources, your thought life, those are things that you worship. Now, I don't probably, probably none of us in, in the room have a God shelf. You know, we're not going to go home and we've carved something out and we put it in our wall. We say, oh, thank you for bringing me home safely today. We're not going to offer offerings like, like many pagan cultures do. But the, but the sad reality of, of it is those, those idols would be easier to deal with than the idols that we have. Right? Because it's easy to say, well, that's our idols. That's, that's our God shelf. That's our Buddha in the backyard. That's what we go down and worship. And, and we can deal with that by, you know, you know, burning it, burying it, throwing it away. But the idols that we have are internal idols. Right? There are things that we worship, like our, our careers, our reputations, our kids, our homes, our possessions. Those are things that have replaced God, that they're more important to us than pleasing God. Adultery. The third list of sin here is sex outside of marriage. This was, by the way, was a capital crime in Israel. A couple of these are listed as capital crimes. The only time that we know in Scripture, though, when adultery was, um, the, the capital crime was attempted to be carried out is in John chapter 8. You remember the story of the woman caught in adultery and they bring her before Jesus and he says the great phrase, you know, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And, and all, of the New Te- all the Old Testament and all the New Testament, the only instance we have where an adultery was a, a capital crime is in John 8 and it wasn't even carried out then. Why was, this, why was this a big issue? Well, because it breaks apart what God has put together. In Genesis chapter 2, when God brought Adam and Eve together, he said that the two become one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man separate. That adultery is the act of breaking apart a marriage. You may say, yeah, but the couple stayed married. Yeah, but you brought something else in that causes division inside of that marriage. The, the, uh, the fourth reference here is a word that we don't use a lot of, effeminate. The Greek word that's underlying here is this. Effeminate simply means the blurring of gender lines. The blurring of gender lines. Why is this a big deal? Especially in our culture today, right? We live in a day and age where we've got all kinds of terms, and I I can't even keep up with them, right? What's the difference between a cis and a trans? I mean, Russ could fill you in. He teaches health, and he's got to stay up on this stuff. But the definitions change on almost a daily basis, all right, and this is this all is dealing with this same concept of effeminate, a blurring of the gender lines. Why? Why is this a big deal? Because God is the one who makes us male and female. We live in a day and age where we're told it's fluid. No, it's not. God has designed us in a certain way. That when we engage in any kind of activity, transgenderism, uh, sex change operations, all kinds of other things, it is a violation of God's standards. We have a, a huge blurring of gender lines and roles. This is not just simply, in some churches kind of reduce it down to this, women shouldn't wear pants. Right? That, that, is, that, is, that, that is so far from what he is saying here. Right? What he's saying here is, is a blending of what God has already designed. And I always say that, the whole line anyways, there's a little rabbit trail for you. They all wore dresses in Jesus' day. All right, so, so putting on pants for women is ridiculous all right, because no one wore pants back then. It's more than clothing. It really revolves around how we relate to one another, that there are differences. Now, we could look at this, this whole idea of, of gender blurring, of gender lines. We can go all the way back um, to, to the feminist movement, right, where, where women want to do everything that men could do. And we saw the blurring of these gender lines and it's kind of the end result is kind of where we are right now. And it will, Well, it's not the end result, it's where we're at today. It does not mean that, that one gender is more valuable than the other. That God makes us equal. That we are complementarian. That we are to fit in together. That's how God designed us to be. The idea of effeminate here is a blurring of that line. Violation of God's standard. 
Homosexuality is also listed here. Uh, homosexuality, we understand what that is. It's unnatural sexual relations with the same sex. This is the culmination, by the way, of violating God's designs. That God makes us male and female. He brings us together into one marriage. And that homosexuality of either gender is a violation. It's the culmination of the violation of God's design as God made us. This also was a capital crime in Israel, but it's also a crime that we don't know was ever, uh, was ever uh, the ultimate punishment was ever brought out. The next sin that's listed here is theft. Theft is simply taking what someone else has. We understand that. There are, there are small thefts, there are big thefts. Right? There, there are, there are um, you know, taking a pen from work uh, kind of a thing, and then there is you know, major embezzlement, major, major uh, taking of, of goods and, and things. Covetousness is, is tied in with theft. Covetousness is simply wanting to take what someone else has. All right, so, so covetousness is kind of the, the hard attitude of like, oh, I really like George's shirt. Theft would be just simply taking it. I, theft begins with covetousness. We begin by think, seeing something that we want. Now that process can be short and it can be long. It can be something that we think about and think about and think about and think about, or it can be just impulsive. Like, oh, I want that candy bar. Whoop, there it goes, it's mine. Covetous may, covetousness may never progress to theft, but the act of desiring itself is sinful. Whether it's another man's wife, whether it's another man's possessions, it is all wrong. Drunkard here just simply means, um, the idea here is just simply being controlled by any intoxicating substance. Being controlled by any intoxicating subs- substance. Alcohol and other drugs rob us of the ability to clearly see the world and serve God. I would also propose this, that in this day today, that we should probably take a very good look at prescription drugs because they should probably also be included here and are probably a much bigger issue in the church today than alcohol and marijuana and other illicit other kinds of drugs being controlled by any intoxicating substance the last two categories here revilers revilers those who would destroy with their tongue james 3 talks about the power of the little tongue you know, it's able, like a rudder of a ship, it's able to turn a great ship and, and, and like a spark, it's able to, to, to launch a whole forest fire and the tongue can do tremendous damage. The revilers are those who destroy with their tongue. Right? Whether it's through gossip, whether it's through slander, whether it's through maliciously spreading even truthful things that shouldn't be shared, that a reviler is someone who is destroying somebody else with their tongue. Swindlers, the, the last um, d- description here, last w- word here, swindlers are those who indirectly take money. They are the ones who talk you out of your money. Here's a list of, of swindlers today. Extortion, embezzlement, con men, Promotion of defective or false merchandise, false advertisement. There are a lot of, of, of swindlers that are out there. All right? and, and it seems like when you go on vacation, they surround wherever you're at. and They want to they help relieve you of your money. Right? And, and we understand what swindlers are. Now this is a list, this is, again is not an exhaustive list, but what he says is, that, is this group of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Does that mean that somebody who struggles with adultery or theft can't get into God's kingdom. No, it's not what he's saying. He says that, that, that those whose lifestyle is perpetually marked by those things and not being marked out as brothers and sisters, children of God, they're not going to inherit the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God here is, uh, there's two different kingdoms in the word of God. There's the kingdom of Israel, David's kingdom. It's a physical reference to the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God is a spiritual entity that God is drawing out from all peoples and all tribes. Some, some are uncomfortable with this distinction, but Israel was meant to be the visible, earthly tool to draw the world to God. They failed. God set them aside. God is working through the church. He's going to catch us away, though, and the, Israel, and, and the physical kingdom of Israel will once again be used by God to draw all men to himself. Now, he says to them an important phrase in verse 11. He says, those kind of people will not inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. I think that's an important phrase to memorize. Why? Because that's what they used to be. That's what they used to be. The church at Corinth had some of all of these kind of people. By the way, so does every other church have some of these all kinds of people. They used to define their past, but no longer. 
Sometimes we, we like the labels that, that, that were attached to us. We need to stop referring to ourselves by what we used to be. And we're really good. Well, I'm an alcoholic. I'm a recovering drug addict. I'm, you know, I, I struggle with pornography. We, all of these things that, that define what we used to be. Here's what we are. We are children of God. Tying it in with what Paul says at the beginning of this book, he says we're children of God, so we ought to act like it. That we aren't defined by what we used to be. You know, we've sung that song, you know, I'm no longer a slave to sin. I'm a child of God. I, I'm not defined by what I used to be. That's what I used to be. Paul says that's, that's what some of us were. Some of you were. And Paul could list in here and said, listen, I was a murderer. I, I, I was a, a persecutor of the church. And in another book, he'll say, I'm, I'm the chiefest of sinners. I'm the best that, that there ever was. I was a reviler of God. I would fit in this list, and so would you. So would I. Now, that's a sobering list because some of us say, well, I, but I'm not all of us. Of course not. None of us are all of these things. And usually the, those things that we don't struggle with, it's easy for us to point the, the, the log sticking, you know, the speck in someone else's eye because we ignore the log sticking out of our own eye of another area or issue. There is no sin that we can commit that God cannot rescue us from, except for the sin of unbelief. Some falsely look at Romans chapter 1 and, and they say, oh, no, no, homosexuality is a bridge too far. And Paul says, no, that's not the case here in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Some of you were that. And God rescued you from that. It doesn't mean that you don't continually struggle with you know, wanting to get drunk. It doesn't mean that you don't struggle with wanting to revile and to take things that don't belong to you, commit fornication or adultery. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to struggle with those things. Because in Romans 7 says the things, I find myself doing those things I don't want to do. The things I know I should be doing, I don't do them. And back and forth he goes. There are sins that we will struggle with until we stand in his presence. We don't just give in to them, be defined by those things. We are to now be differently oriented. He uses three phrases here. He says, such were some of you, but but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Washed, washed simply here means to be regenerated or to be made new. We've been cleaned up. we, We have been made presentable. Those things that used to define us that were corrupting, that were polluting, that were sinful, have been removed from us. I listed a a number of references here about regeneration. Let me just look at at one of them in Titus chapter 3. Titus 3 and verse 5. He has saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit. Another verse there is 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's the idea of washing. Right? That we have been, They have been removed from us. We have been sanctified. We've talked about this word before. Sanctified just simply means to set apart, be set apart for a new purpose. Sin's domination has been broken. We are given a new nature. That we must pursue Holiness. Why? Because we're special in our spouse? No, because he is holy. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. Justification is a legal standing, which is interesting to use that word in this context where he's been talking about lawsuits against brother versus brother. It's a new standing that's judicially declared over us, that, that Jesus' righteousness is applied to us and our sins have been removed. So stop living in it. All right, we've been washed. We've been sanctified. We've been justified. John MacArthur said this, and I thought it was great in summarizing this all up. He said this, he said, transformed life should result in transformed living. Transformed life should result in transformed living. That we shouldn't, listen, we we might struggle till the day we die with with our past life, but the power over over us has been broken. And that we should live transformed life because we've been transformed so what do we do with lawsuits? While it may gall us, we may be abused by fellow believers. So how should we act? Well, we should forgive. We should seek out help inside the church, if possible. But it's possible for us to be swindled, to be cheated, to be taken advantage of by people inside the church. We should never use the courts. God will make all things right. So do I trust him 
or do I trust the state? Restoration may happen on the other side of glory, but it will happen. God is a God of justice. He will make all things right. When you've been wronged, the things that you've been wronged in, God will make it right. It may not happen this side of glory, but it will happen. We need to live lives of righteousness and stop looking like the world. We need to be washed and sanctified and justified. We are not what we used to be. We are not fully what we will be either. God is not finished with us. So stop being defined by what you used to be. Stop being defined by the world's terms. And remember we are brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us live as if we are. Transformed life should result in transformed living. Are our lives transformed?